Hello and welcome again to the famous CFC podcast where each episode offers a deep dive into the wonderful history of Chelsea Football Club. My name is Gary Barone and I'm joined as usual by club historian Rick Glanville. Hi Rick. Hello mate. What time is it Gary? What time is it? It's about time we won another trophy. <laughs> Always that but more pertinent right now for today's pod. Uh, seeing as the squad is assembling at Cobham, we've seen the pictures from the training ground and we've seen Mauricio Pochettino as coach for the first time. It's a time for hope. Mm-hmm. I always call the the uh, summer recess the dream time because anything is possible. Last season is history. The future is about to descend upon us in a couple of weeks' time. But it's also time to stop punishing ourselves for last season's travail, shake off that hair shirt, <laughs> and let's celebrate the history of our fresh starts, the green shoots of recovery, the brave new dawns that have heralded success down the years. Oh, Rick, I do like the sound of that. <laughs> but but today, on the basis of quite how bad mm. our season was for the club, we're going to examine some first matches of the season, ones that took place after a promotion, change of manager or other trauma. There's also plenty of evidence for the old adage, fail to prepare and you prepare to fail. (laughs) Unfortunately, yes, it's not plain sailing today, uh, what we're about to receive. But the great Ray Wilkins once told me his favourite smell was freshly mown grass. And I said to him, why is that? He said, because it means football is coming back. He associated with freshly cut grass with the beginning of the football season. Let's go back even further. Not just this new season or just gone, but shall we start with the first ever, the first time the grass was ever cut at Stamford Bridge uh, back in spring 1905 when Chelsea was a club started from scratch. We voted into the Football League's Division 2, assembled a team, a great team, built a stadium and attracted a huge fan base all in a matter of months. I mean, it just never ceases to amaze me what we did then and uh the first ever game for this amazing new project came at lowly stockport county for non-british listeners that's in the northwest of uh of england a really sort of small club uh now and it was then they were a very lowly club and we played well at their ground edgeley park and because of the excitement in the newspapers about this new project, this new London club, um, and the amount of money that was being thrown at it, it actually attracted a then record crowd to the ground of 7,000. I think that was only beaten like uh, relatively recently, a few years ago. Rick, were they only here for the Chelsea? <laughs> of course they were, as all clubs. Uh, we always sing that, don't we? <laughs> Yeah, and I'm sure, unfortunately, we d- we didn't win, so we couldn't sing You've Had Your Day Out Now off home. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, we lost 1-0, actually. And this is despite our legendary goalkeeper, Willie Falk, saving a penalty on his Chelsea debut. So that was quite an auspicious thing. He saved a ridiculous number of penalties that season. There's a story of one opposition striker, uh, having missed his opportunity from 12 yards and being berated by his manager and complaining to the manager, he's looking at the goal in which Falk was sort of dancing around to sort of 
grovel I like to try and cover as much ground as possible. And Fork, remember, is six foot two, 22 stones in weight and artful. And the striker's saying to the manager, it's all very well for you, but I put the ball down on the spot, looked up, and there was no space either around Fork to put the ball into the net. <laughs> so um, that's quite a nice story of our, our opening. And there is, I can reveal uh, a small aside for statistics or history nerds history books including my own and uh, hopefully some of you have invested in those tomes uh, tell us that player manager Jackie Robertson he's the one who assembled that first ever squad and managed it uh, that he was part of that first ever team but those books including my own are wrong recent research in archives by um a Chelsea fan, Robert Randall, who contacted me and myself. I went to the British Library and, and checked up and found new evidence as well. Proves that Jackie was actually unfit and his place was taken by a fellow Scot, William Porter. Now, Porter, um, had only we only in the records only had him down for two appearances. So he's, he's added <laughs> to his total appearances for the club up to three now before his summer move. Uh, in 1907 to Luton. That's a club, of course, to bring us up to date, who are freshly promoted and will compete in the Premier League in 2022-23-4. So, so, Rick, that first year then, did we actually have a pre-season? Not really. Um, everything was happening so quickly. They couldn't fit in a tour of anything. I had a few tryouts. They used to do possible versus probables or A versus B, that kind of thing, just to see who was ready for the kickoff but the the big one that we had the big friendly game was a really a, a load testing of the brand new Stamford Bridge Stadium which had previously been in the athletics ground and was totally overhauled um, and was magnificent for the time and that was against division one visitors so we were a division two team and they were from the uh, the tier above um, Liverpool who we lashed 4-0 and that match actually took place after the Stockport game. It was, as I say, it was a stadium tester. But we, that, so you look at, you know, was there anything you could take from that opening of that season? And actually we did pretty well. We ended that inaugural season in third place and we missed out on promotion by nine points. Now that's not great because it was two points for a win back then. So that sort of four wins and a draw was the yeah. deficit, but not bad for a first outing even though we lost not bad but it wasn't too long before those first fans at the bridge it wasn't too long before that to wait for something more meaningful to celebrate totally and again we're a club that was in a rush so we were promoted the following season our second ever um so having not even existed two years earlier we rose to division one for 1907-8 so now you're talking about our first ever top flight games, which are quite significant. And the next season opener was our first game among England's elite on the 7th of September 1907, when, sadly, Sheffield United, and they're still around, the Blades, uh, put us to the sword 4-2 at home. But the shiny silver lining was that uh, Gatling Gunhilsden, you know, he of the iconic weather vane that we've mentioned a few times on this show, um, and he's still swinging above the east stand in the form of that weather vane. He opened the scoring after just 15 minutes. And, of course, that, by definition, that was our first ever top-flight goal. And uh, one of just um, just one 
of the 32, that brilliant striker netted in all competitions that campaign with Gatling Gun, as he was known, and Jimmy Windrich in brilliant form. We rallied very strongly, including, don't forget, including beating Arsenal 2-1 in London's first ever top-tier London derby at the bridge on 9th of November 1907. And we closed the season as London's highest place club. We'd only been in existence for three seasons. That's an honour we've achieved 24 times since. Uh, We're second in that respect only to Arsenal. Uh, though clearly that didn't happen last season. <laughs> it was a disaster as far as London derbies went. Um, where we were dispiriting, there were sorry, there were five teams dispiritingly <laughs> from the capital that finished above us. Uh, in fact, a bit of a quirk in the campaign just gone, London sides occupied each position from eighth to twelfth. In the Premier League, which is a bit weird, only West Ham in 14th or lower. So we need to get back to winning ways as far as London is concerned. Yeah. Also, I think the season gone on for a few weeks longer would have been behind West Ham as well. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Anyway, Rick, going back these hundred years or so, we we seem to be something of a yo-yo club. Is that right? Oh, totally. Uh, Sadly, despite the huge crowds we were attracting and the stellar strikers we signed... You know, we were relegated in 1910, promoted in 12, dropped again in 24 uh, and stayed in the second division for six seasons. And we finally returned to the top flight in 1930. And um, the the widespread opinion was that this was a club whose natural home was Division One, England's elite, because we had a wonderful ground at Stamford Bridge and vast resources to attract the best players. And so in 1930, for that kickoff in Division One, um, we had the sensational signing of the summer, Huey Gallagher, who joined from Newcastle. Uh, Newcastle fans were, you know, people talk about Mason Mount going to Manchester United. Newcastle fans wrote poems about Huey Gallagher coming to Chelsea. And their record gate at Newcastle still is the visit of Chelsea in 1930 where they wanted to see Huey Gallagher turn out in royal blue. That's still their record gate at St James's. For how long, we don't know, but it is at the moment. Um, And those, honestly, I spoke to lots of fans who saw him play and they all felt that it was like a pocket battleship player. Um, No equal for cleverness, mischief, all-round finishing and probably bad temper, I should say, as well but also goal area intensity. He snapped, snaffled up chances like no other. And um, and then there were other recruits from Scotland, Alex Sheen, Alex Jackson, though he wasn't available until a little bit later. But um, I'm going to ask you about how Huey did on his debut, but before we do, is it possible to give us some sort of take on the absolute size of... Um, that Huey Gallagher was at that time. He was a megastar, wasn't he? I mean, different days were different, you know, no social media or anything, but in terms of how well-known he was and his status in the game, he was outstanding, wasn't he? Huge star. Well, if he, he was a total superstar. He was part of the 1929 Scottish team, the Wembley Wizards, who beat England 5-1, as was Tommy Law, who played in the same Chelsea side. And... He was just renowned for being 
the best striker of his generation. And in fact, I think you look at the status of him um, that was such that when he retired from the game, he had a column, a, like a very popular column in a, in a newspaper. And he was always, whenever you talked about the greatest strikers the game had ever known, he was in that conversation. Likewise, um, my predecessors as historians of Chelsea always mention him in the sort of top five of all-time stars at, at Stamford Bridge. So he really was an absolute superstar. But you said about what? how did he do on his debut, didn't you? Mm. Well, he actually had a very lively and promising start. He, he, went, he went close to scoring. He hit the post. And, uh, and in fact, he won the decisive penalty with 10 minutes to go. So, uh, and he, you know, he was always riling defenders. So he probably lured some, someone into uh, battering him because they didn't like him sniping at them. He was fouled though, when he was just about to score a debut goal from close range. So he would have added to our list of um, goal scoring debutants. In fact, it was, I mentioned him earlier, it was fullback Tommy Law, another Wembley wizard who converted uh, that for what it was a, an auspicious return to the top tier, really. Was it a good season? Pretty good. I think we ended up about 10th or something like that, which for a new team in the, in the top flight was uh, was pretty good going. Um, and and I always did, uh, say... What sort of, sorry, I was going to say, about, about the, the, um, the pre-season that year, how did that go? Oh well, yeah, I was just about to mention that actually, Gary, because we we ought to cover this in more detail on a later pod by itself. But in 1929, we had this groundbreaking team bonding summer tour of Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay that that um, I think worked wonders for the morale of the players and the squad, and in terms of gelling them um, together, even though the likes of uh, Gallagher weren't there and I think that it's again it, it shows the importance sometimes of what you do in the summer of how you prepare how you think about going forward what do you need and clearly they thought that um, in 1928-29 the club was still in second division they were going nowhere they needed a needed to do something really kind of drastic and something to really get the team to bond and so they went on this epic I think two and a half three month tour of South America and it brought them all together and in 1929-30 they were promoted brilliantly so pre-season this is not just the dream time it's the time when you get your preparation and you sort yourselves out yeah absolutely now moving forward and I'm can almost remember this but i can only i can remember the impact they made within the few years after but tommy doherty brought up that young side from yeah. exile in the second division back in 1963 and um that was a decent side wasn't it oh beautiful to watch and so many of them became icons of chelsea football club you know you're talking bridges benetti harris hollins you know later osgood and oh, venables Brilliant, brilliant players, not just, you know, icons of football, not just of of uh, Chelsea. And, um, yeah, they promoted in 62-63. So, again, 
uh, only been down one one season, which helped. But this incredible young outfit come into the first division and really sort of take it by storm, um, despite the fact that on the opening day, uh, it was a an eventful but nonetheless stalemate draw nil nil against a very good West West Ham team led by none other than Robert Chelsea, middle name Chelsea, Robert Moore, Bobby Moore, the England star. And um, Jimmy Mulholland looked great when he beat three Hammers players, but then he put his shot wide. uh, And that was really his chance gone. So this is another thing. First impressions. If you're going to, you need to make a statement on these in these opportunities now he didn't he missed his opportunity and of course Barry Bridges came in and Barry became the go-to man alongside Bobby Tambling uh, in Doherty Strike Force and these were overwhelmingly junior players so fans felt a real bond with them Um, and I think it's worth noting that Doherty you mentioned him Tommy Dock was a manager who'd only just hung up his playing boots so Chelsea were one of the fittest teams in the league uh again such an important aspect of pre-season and hopefully being among the fittest is a status we'll look forward to again in 2023-24 under Pochettino because he has this hard-nosed fitness coach Jesus uh, Perez and um you know really for the last past few seasons I think we've been outrun surprisingly pretty consistently by opposition teams but anyway but just Doherty's team finished fifth in 64 so that's first season back in the top flight then third then fifth and I mean that is a team that really put Chelsea back on the football map the famous CFC will be back with more great stories from Chelsea history after this short break Bird dogs make you look good. That's right, bird dogs stretch khaki shorts are designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg, giving you a truly sculpted look. They fit way better than regular shorts that are made of a stiff, restrictive cotton. Bird dogs uses anti-stink sweat wicking fabric that keeps you cool and dry all day long. So look, I've got a pair. Dan's got a pair. Nick's got a pair. We actually love them. But not only do you get bird dogs right now, if you buy, you get a free Tumblr. That's right. You get a free Yeti Tumblr. All you have to do is go to birddogs.com forward slash pool, P-O-O-L. Enter the promo code P-O-O-L for a free Yeti style Tumblr with your order. That's birddogs.com forward slash pool for a free Yeti style Tumblr. You won't want to take your bird dogs off. We promise you. Now, lots of supporters will have fond memories of another inspiring young blue side promoted to the first division in 1977 under Eddie McCready. How did their first day go back in the big time, though, Rick? I think you know the answer to this, Uh. GB. Um, Occasionally, a a new start can also signify the bonfire of your vanities, and that was the case here. Really, you're talking summer 1977, the wind had already been taken out of our cells when Eddie McCready, who, as you said, was an inspirational figure, not just for the young players that he had in his squad, but also the supporters, a real figurehead. His contract dispute with the club ended in McCready's departure and Ken Shellito took over. Now, Ken was widely admired because he'd been previously in charge of the youth team and he'd nurtured uh, the majority of the 
squad into professional football. So it kind of seemed like it could have been a a good fit, but he never really felt comfortable in that role. And there was a loss of momentum after the how charismatic Eddie McCready had been and how all of that hope that had been channeled into this return to the to the big time how that dissipated after McCready was let go and the, the nature of it and so it looked a problem straight away on the opening day when we lost 3-0 at a middling but seasoned West Brom side and Shelley said afterwards we looked green we did well for an hour then crumbled and lost our composure yeah, crumbled it does make us sound a little bit like a packet of biscuits, doesn't it? It does. It, it's hard to really explain how the energy of us all was sucked out that summer because totally. we had such a brilliant, young, energetic, exciting side of Chelsea boys, nearly all youngsters from the uh, from the juniors. Yeah, and it, it, we had such a fantastic, exciting season, and then to start the new season where. All that energy are gone. And because we couldn't capitalise on the momentum from promotion, we, we ended up having to sell the better players because there was no money in the club. But yeah. if we'd been winning, they would have kept it together. But the fact is we weren't winning. They needed more and more money. And the players, one by one, the better ones, had to say goodbye. Exactly. I mean, there were great things from that team, like Ray Wilkins and, you know, the, the, the sort of the bond between the players... Yeah. And the supporters. We used to take tens of thousands to away games, if you remember then. It was just remarkable. And yeah, you know, players who were heroes like Gary Stanley, they were probably mm. heroes because they were playing in that team at the Stanford Bridge. And so when they went to a different club, they never made the same sort of impact. Other than say Kenny Swain, they ended up winning the Champions League or the European Cup as it was then. Yeah. And <laughs> yes, and Ken Ken doesn't regret I've spoken to him about it. He doesn't regret moving, but he did have a brilliant time there. And I think that was the sort of you felt like there was a sort of fairground atmosphere to going to away away games, and it was you know we lots of us were on a roller coaster ride, but it felt when McCready went, it felt like rather than sort of safely rolling to a stop on at ground level, there was a bit missing halfway round, and we all sort of tumbled off <laughs> to our doom. It felt really uh, it felt that bad, I think. It really did. And although we didn't go down that season, we dropped down the season after. But then five years later, we made a much more hopeful return to the elite level, starting at Arsenal's Marble Hall Highbury on the 25th of August, 
sort of kind of entrepreneurial local sneakily selling cold cans through a through a garden gate you know he's like you you'd have to knock twice on the gate sort of thing and like some old prohibition era film he sort of looked through a hatch and then sort of passed the the drink through but it was just the most brilliant you felt such a return of the old Chelsea the old swagger of of Chelsea well I remember getting there really early because I was unbelievably excited we'd had a great season you know with mm. really exciting players and we were sure we we're going to make an impact this time round yeah and the um I just remember arriving early and there already being swarms of Chelsea fans and I mm. thought I'm not going to hang about I'm going to go straight in I didn't want to um I, I didn't want to go anywhere else other than the clock end um, I just want to be part of it all. Yeah. And um, we went to the east side of the clock end and there was some police there saying, no, Chelsea fans, you've got to get in at the other side. And <laughs> I'm thinking, there's no way you're going to give us half the clock end. You know, we're going to fill it. No. <laughs> so exactly. after, after a bit of arguing, he actually let us through. And of course, uh, we got in relatively easily. And then gradually they realised that Chelsea had to have the whole of the clock end. And the images that you have of that day when the goal scored and there's yeah. some great stills of it is there's groups of Chelsea fans everywhere jumping up and down and celebrating absolutely everywhere. And these weren't people who were sort of, um, you know, getting into cool trouble. This was people just wanting to be part of it, wanting to be in the ground. But one of my great memories of that day, other than the day itself, the sunshine, the blue everywhere, and obviously Dixon's goal, was a collision between Doug Rugby and Viv Anderson um, is on the west side of the ground and they were both running towards the ball. It's 50-50 and they both stayed upright. They, 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 no, no one lunged in. And there was a collision that must, must have been measured on the Richter scale. It was absolutely <laughs> huge. Yeah. And then what, what, once the blur of that collision had gone, you realise that Ruvi was with the ball carrying a running down our left and Viv Anderson was lying flat on his yeah. back. And the roar went up almost like it was a goal scored. It was it was an iconic collision, one of my favourite collisions ever. I also remember Paul Canneville getting past Viv Anderson a couple of times and that really getting our fans going. It was great to see someone do that to such a great defender. And it felt like we were the young challengers and they were the sort of faded perhaps fading glory of uh, of uh, the London football scene. But the whole fan base was inspired by that previous season and seeing how Dixon, Nevin and the rest would, would yeah. fare in, in the top flight. And you mentioned pockets all over the place in the ground. Personally, um, we couldn't get into the clock end the way, as you say, away supporters were supposed to go. And in fact, at the top of the clock, and as we were walking around there, a mate a Chelsea mate was leaning over the top saying, you're not going to get in, go down the other end. You're not going to get in here. It's too crowded. Mm. And um, it's rammed. So we went, we, we went to the North bank, the home end and um, amongst the Arsenal loyal and kept a low profile. And I've got to say, it was pretty difficult keeping Sturm when Kerry Dixon volleyed in that brilliant equaliser. I bet it was, but um, I'm, I'm sure people around you must have known at that point that um, you were oh, celebrating yeah. the goal, not cursing it. But um, <laughs> that team, we finished six in successive seasons and it was fantastic fun to watch, but it declined. And towards the end of the decade, we were Division One new boys again, having been relegated in 1988. Yeah. 
This time, Chelsea faced a trip to notoriously awkward Wimbledon on the opening day, which was the 19th of August, 1989. Kevin Wilson keeps going. Lee to his right and Dixon. Wilson's coming to the near post! And the substitute has struck. And maybe Kevin Wilson has given Chelsea a win in their first game back in the first division. Great to hear that. And we finished a credible fifth in the top flight that season under Bobby Campbell. So that opening day victory was actually a good indicator of the season to follow. And brilliantly, we've been in the among the elite of the Premier League and the old first division ever since. That's a run of 34 years. That, that must be our best run, isn't it? 34 yeah, years? It is. It's our record run in the top flight. Now, all that means we were founding members of the Premier League when it was repackaged from the old First Division for the 1992-1993 season. Now, it didn't feel much like a brave new world then. And when the fixtures paired us at home to Bogeyside Oldham on the 15th of August, we're not too sure how it was going to work out. At Stamford Bridge, there was a debut goal for Mick Harford. Chelsea, in their famous blue, had missed several chances before Harford let fly with only six minutes remaining. The celebrations were short-lived, though. 60 seconds later, Oldham were level. Chelsea goalkeeper Dave Besant's clearance went straight to Nick Henry, who only yards inside the Chelsea half, played it back first time straight into the goal. Harford's strike, resulting in only one point for Chelsea. It should have been three. Niche quiz answer, Mick Harford there, with our first ever Premier League-era goal, of course. Um, they called him the head waiter because he always waited at the back post for headers. God, I hated Oldham. I really hated Oldham. <laughs> hated going there, hated playing them. They always seemed scruffy and not very good until they played us. Um, but the, I would say, to be honest, um, the result was about right, as Chelsea was a club in need of serious modernisation on and off the field at that time. Yeah. Absolutely. And that was under the boss, Ian Porterfield, who had been Bobby Campbell's assistant. But I do believe, and you may be able to enlighten us here, Rick, that we dodged a <laughs> bullet before that appointment. That we did. Um, this was one of two occasions when uh, we almost appointed Neil Warnock as manager, Colin, as he's better known. And I reckon we'd have had a very different 1990s with him in charge, me. I reckon <laughs> we'd have had a very different 1990s with him in charge, me. <laughs> but then of course the Chelsea revolution was about to be televised as new player manager Glenn Hoddle started to implement his new thinking at home to Blackburn on the 14th of August 1993 so from the pre-season preparations in the Makita to the premiership battles 29,000 at the bridge here and Blackburn almost getting the first goal of the campaign Karine just managing to keep Newell out Karin again demonstrating his agility and flexibility. It's a well-worked Blackburn free-kick routine. Now they stretch Blackburn. This is Spencer. Mays the first defender to him. Where is the support from the Chelsea players? It's Dennis Wise and it's Gavin Peacock. What a start to your league career. The Shed love that. Chelsea lead. 48 minutes gone. Good running from Spencer. This is the view Bobby Mims had of it. Dennis Wise with the outside of the right foot. Delicate. 
Lasso. Can hear the treatment he gets from the home supporters. Ripley was allowed to run. You can't do that to Stuart Ripley. He got away from Hoddle and the rest. Through the legs of Dimitri Karin. Ripley again the cause of trouble here. Blackburn finishing the game strongly. It's a tap-in for Mike Newell. And it could be a late winner. Here it is again. They allow Ripley to run in. Karen gets a touch to the cross, but just sets it up for Newell. Chelsea 1, Blackburn 2. Ooh, the talented Mr. Ripley spoiling Hoddle's big day there. Mm-hmm. And former Blue Graham Lasso helping do the damage. What are you doing, Graham? Uh, this was a deceptive start, though, because although Chelsea were a mid-table side under under Hoddle, he made wholesale practical and phys- philosophical changes that put our club on a on a proper footing for the future, with the likes of Rude Hullet and Gianluca benefiting from the course taken. So that's sort of misleading. It didn't wasn't harbinger of of the shape of the club to come. No, absolutely. And we have to say, without Hoddle we then wouldn't have had Jose Mourinho introducing himself to English football in that first game of the season against Manchester United in August 2004. Manchester United at home, a true test of any championship hopefuls metal. They were also the team Mourinho's Porto had knocked out of Europe five months earlier. It was an early chance to gain the upper hand in the title race. For his first selection, Mourinho made a difficult and significant choice. Newly arrived Petr Cech was preferred in goal to Carlo Cudicini, the Premiership's outstanding keeper of the previous two years. In the absence of wingers Duff and Robin, a diamond-shaped midfield was deployed. Ferreira, Carvalho, Smertin, Drogba and Kesman would all make their debuts during the game. This is Neville. Never shy to come up in support. Cech thought about coming and went back. Gallas got the header away. And now Jeremy with some space far side. Chelsea on the counter, he's got Drogba ahead of him. Lampard trying to make a run forward as well. Knocked on by Drogba, Goodjonsson, Ida Goodjonsson scores for Chelsea! It's taken 15 minutes, and the Blues lead, and Jose Mourinho gets a perfect start in his first competitive game. Excellent start for Chelsea. It might have come off uh, Roy Keane, but you can bet your bottom dollar that Goodjonsson's going to claim back. The famous CFC will be back with more great stories from Chelsea history after this short break. Oh, Gary, what a fit Jose was to, to Chelsea, the, the, the Chelsea that had emerged over the previous decade. Um, I mean, what an era that was. We're so lucky to have been in our prime when all of this was happening. Um, but people forget about the pre-season, which was so important, and especially... They don't remember our first game, though. Do you remember it? It was a friendly at League Two Oxford United that we drew 1-1. <laughs> League Two Oxford United that we drew 1-1, thanks to new signing Matteo Kesman. And yet he took a long time to get his second goal, though, didn't he? <laughs> he did. He did. Um, and then there was the three-game US tour, uh, the Zola tribute match against Zaragoza and a quick jump to South Korea. But Jose had his game face on, so everyone was totally focused on success. And I think the roots of what we saw from from then on uh, were this sort of more professional setup, this making good decisions. So much of football at every level is about decision making. Yeah, 
But can we talk about 2016-17? That feels like a total reset after the trauma of finishing 10th in 2015-16 and Jose being sacked for a second time. Yeah, and it feels like, again, we need a little perspective because in uh, 2014-15, we'd won the league for the fifth time, third time under Jose. But things went horribly awry in pre-season 2015. Um, we were sort of pretty slapdash and winless throughout another USA tour that summer. The players looked half-cooked, unfit, and Jose didn't feel his transfer needs were, were being met. So there was a... We really lost momentum. And I do think you need pre-season momentum to take into the, those initial uh, flurries of the uh, of the campaign. And we just didn't have that um, for many reasons, not least the serious illness of Jose's father. Um, earlier in the season, his second coming had become third rate and we finished 10th. And then if you remember, obviously, Gusidink, uh, ended up holding the reins. So the club ended up taking a very different route, hiring a real hard taskmaster, Antonio Conte, a fifth Italian appointment in that role. And he'd come from the Azzurri national team. And he came in in April, and the pre-season was different. It was much less hectic. It was Austria, then a few matches in the USA. And that allowed Conte to do what he does best, which is the fitness work to set up that stamina in legs because no team works harder than a Conte team and no team worked harder in August 2016 and Chelsea before the big kickoff at home to West Ham. Matuai looking for Costa. Pedro wants it. Costa doesn't want to give it to him. That's why. That is why. Diego Costa making his style. Looked initially as if James Collins had saved the day. He just doesn't get tight enough to big fella and Diego Costa. He gets time to get it out of his feet. Ball comes in. Collins matches the run. Looks as if the danger is just about over, but James Collins can't quite get out quickly enough. It's a terrific strike from Costa, who's had a very lean night up until now. But me just have had the final say through James Collins' legs. Well, we know he wears his heart on his sleeve. There we go, Antonio Conte. Bringing his unique brand of celebration to the Premier League. Now, everyone remembers the famous tactical switch to a back three at half-time at Arsenal when we were 3-0 down, but that led us to winning the league. But no one seems to remember the ref we love to hate. I'm not saying I do. I do. Uh, <laughs> Anthony Taylor actually awarding us a penalty. Yeah. <laughs> it's a collector's item, that, isn't it? Another huge, huge factor, though, was uh, we were infinitely fitter, as I mentioned, and better prepared than a year earlier. Also, the debutants in that match included Michi Batshuayi, whose winner would clinch the league, league at the clinch the title at the Hawthorns eight months later. And of course, the mighty, the, oh, we're going to miss him, N'Golo Kante. 
Gunner at Gunner miss him. I think I miss him already. Yes. <laughs> sad to reflect that that remains our most recent title league success. Now, after a poor season like 22-23, how do you think we're shaping up? My feeling is we have a lot of reasons to be uh, upbeat. We have a lot of reasons to feel confident. Um, it's a big step up, though, from going 12th to winning the league. I would not be unhappy with a top four finish. But I know that the the positivity around how he came across in that interview has really impressed a lot of Chelsea fans. And I think that there's been giving giving everyone sort of renewed hope. And I don't want to get carried away, but I'm looking forward to the new season with um with you know quite a reasonable amount of optimism. I'm now calling him Mauricio Positivo. <laughs> because I'm um, really blown away by how immensely professional his first interview was in contrast to some of our previous appointments. And he struck all the right points, I thought, you know, dying for the club, togetherness with the fans. I love that, where he's saying he wants to rebuild the relationship with the fans and that's his responsibility. I think that's the point. He's saying, this is on me uh, and my staff. You know, we're going to be proactive about this. And of course, proclaiming Chelsea the greatest club in England over the past 15 years is always going to go down well with the fan base. And of course, it's empirically correct. Um, and he was talking about the squad and training more to come. So he seems lots of things where he closed off a lot of uh, opportunities for the media to look for gaps and to exploit those and say, oh, he didn't talk about the squad. He didn't say he was happy with the team. And so it was a really well-rounded, very impressive performance, I think, by Poch. So we're going into this, you know, the, in a, a couple of months' time, we could be going into this first game of the season, I think, with uh, fans well behind him. Hopefully the pre-season, you know, where it's a semi-intense itinerary in the USA with five games over paced, I suppose, over two weeks, including uh, three against Premier League rivals, Brighton, Newcastle and Fulham. Um, but it feels like there's a sense that the club is moving in the right direction again. Uh, plus, we have a fine-looking new blue and gold strip, which is probably our best livery for ages, I would say. I, I completely agree. Also, though, what's interesting, one of the things you said there about um, recognising the disconnect between fans and mm. players. Um, but because it was such an awful season with so many bad headlines anyway, that isn't something that was widely picked up upon, but it's brilliant that he has actually, either through his own observation or listening to good advice, has realised that that's a good starting point. You know, you get the fans behind the new regime, you get the fans behind the players, and that, that means you're taking a lid off any sort of limitations that people might have, and people will be more optimistic. Yeah, there's no... I didn't detect anything about uh, people mentioning, oh, he was a Tottenham coach. <laughs> so, you know, no Chelsea fans are saying. I don't think we even remember he... Was he ever... Coach at Tottenham, I can't even remember. <laughs> Espanol, I remember. I'm not sure he's ever managed anywhere else. <laughs> PSG, yeah, but uh, exactly. Anyway, so there's optimism all round as the hard work for the players starts in earnest. So how nice it is to end on a high. Oh, yes. And you've been listening to the famous CFC with me, Gary Barone, and him, Rick Glanville. Now, we'll be back again next week. And in the meantime, please subscribe or even review our pod and always back the blues. As Potch said, the greatest team in England 
it's official. You take care, see ya. Up the blues.